to a special tag team edition of the Title IX College Sports Conversations podcast. Bonnie Bernstein, thrilled to be in the house with two commissioners, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert, who we all look like we're in separate boxes, but Adam just wanted to point out that he and Kathy are actually sitting next to each other in the NBA studio. So I've done my job, Adam. Everything else, I'm, I'm not I'm touching her right now, but <laughs> no one can actually see that. But that's okay. <laughs> We're high-fiving. We're high-fiving. The limits of technology. But, but you can oh. hear each other's voices when we speak. So we are colleagues. We sit near each other, and we're right next to each other at this moment. Well, here's one thing that Kathy has on you, Adam. She grew up as one of eight siblings. We got two Jersey girls in the house, so we gotta we gotta give a shout out there. But when I hear eight, and I know that you and all of your siblings were athletes, I just want to know why your parents didn't have ten, so you would have two full basketball teams. Well, that's because my mom and dad were out there too, and my dad was drafted into the NBA in 1957 uh, by the Detroit Pistons. So we've got we got DNA in us and on the court. So we did have a little How- rickety court in the back in our backyard. A lot of people must be wondering, Adam Silver, he's the commissioner of the NBA. Why is he on this Title IX podcast? There were multiple attempts to try to get a professional women's basketball league going. There was the WBL in the late 70s. There was the ABL in the mid-90s. Neither of them lasted for more than three years. And Adam, even though you've been commissioner since 2014, you've been with the league for 30 years, and you were actually part of the team that put together the initial business model for the WNBA. What was it about that business model that helped create what's become the most sustainable professional women's basketball league? It's, it's an interesting question. So much of the credit goes to Val Ackerman, who was really the, the force behind um, the development of the league. And at the time, Russ Granick, who was the deputy commissioner, and of course, David Stern, um, who you know ultimately greenlit it and so funded it and made it all happen. You may recall, Bonnie, when we launched the WNBA initially, it was comprised entirely of NBA teams who were then operating WNBA teams in the summer. And why we launched in that time of year, it had to do with television availability at the time, TV windows, and also arena availability because the buildings were largely full in the, in the more classical basketball season. So um, it evolved over time. It's not the business model. we originally designed, but whatever is. And I think, you know, now Kathy, you know, under her leadership has even yet, you know, revamped the model, went out, raised independent capital, has done a bunch of things that we didn't, weren't even on the drawing board back 30 years ago. That is definitely on the list of things I want to touch on, a $75 million capital raise that was closed in February of this year. But I'm wondering if Kathy, young Kathy, growing up in South Jersey, was the WBL anywhere on your radar? Had you heard of the New Jersey Gems or the Philadelphia Fox? Or did you have any sense that there could be, if I played my cards right, some sort of professional opportunity for me in basketball? Yeah, I don't think we, a lot of the women, because remember, I'm a Title IX kid, right? So it was in the 70s when Title IX opened up the opportunity to even play a lot of organized sports, which you know, I didn't have the opportunity. Like, girls' soccer didn't even exist for me in the 70s. Um, and so I played lacrosse and tennis and basketball. And thank goodness my dad was a basketball player. So, no, I, I don't remember any of those teams. I don't remember any of those leagues. 
I remember going to Lehigh, getting this coach called Muffet McGraw, had no idea who she was. She was coming out of St. Joe's University and was pretty young and it was her first head coaching job and now Naismith Hall of Famer and has been such an icon in the sport. But yeah, I don't, I don't remember the professional leagues. Well, here's a fun fact about Muffet. Are you ready for this? So the WBL had a player. Her name was Muffet McGraw and she played one year for a team called the California Dream. You got her, as you said, in her very early years in coaching. When you reflect back on that time with her, Kathy, is there anything specific you remember about her approach, her mindset, her coaching mantra that ultimately has helped her become one of the greatest coaches in the history of women's college basketball and really one of the critical figures in helping move the game forward. Yeah, I would say, you know, with Muffet, it was, um, again, it was her first head coaching job. She didn't recruit any of us. I was a walk-on. By the way, she tells the story now. She almost cut me because she thought I was a <laughs> cheerleader or tennis player, but I said... Well, you were recruited to play lacrosse, though, I was, right? and I was a walk-on yeah. for basketball. I literally saw a poster, like, basketball tryouts today for the women's team and, and went and tried out, but... Um, most competitive person I've ever met, Muffet, um, as you see with her rivalry across the years with whether it's Gino and Yukon or whatever. And she just um, very um, courageous in her, using her voice, I think, as she has done um, towards the end of her career here around women's equality and equity. Um, but the one thing I remember the most about her was like, y you've got to be great in ordinary moments because then you'll like just kill it in extraordinary ones. And so she used to just obviously practice, 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 and teach so much around the ordinary moments are gonna make you great in the extraordinary ones. Well, it's interesting because your, your appointment to WNBA commissioner came after 30 plus years at Deloitte. If Deloitte doesn't ring a bell for any of you listening, it's one of the big four accounting and, and global consulting firms, and you'd spent you know, 30 years there in business, the first female CEO. How did this job come about? Adam, did you just pick up the phone and call her? What, what, what was the story? I'm going to let Kathy answer that question. <laughs> well, truth be known, so at Deloitte, you have a term when you're the CEO. My term was coming to an end. I was trying to think about what I wanted to do next, and I wrote three things on a piece of paper. I wanted something different something with a broad women's leadership platform and something I had a passion for. And the passion came from playing and my father, uh, something different, yes, sports definitely different. And then the broad women's leadership platform, little did I know what we'd embark upon with a collective bargaining agreement and the, and the bubble and George Floyd and a league of 80% women of color. And obviously at a time when the momentum around women's sports is high. So, um, so you know, but uh, truth be known, I came over, someone like really convinced me, just come over for 30 minutes and talk to Adam, because I said no about five times, by the way. And I came over and I walked into the NBA offices and I got out and there was like a parquet basketball floor and the elevator bank and everywhere logos and there was Kobe and Wilt, Wilt who my dad had played against and, and Shaq and all these pictures and logos of NBA, WNBA teams. And I walked out and I really don't remember a lot of what Adam said that day, but I do remember one thing I walked out <laughs> saying, this is where I'm going to work. She, she remembers wait, wait, wait. our. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. let. I'm not going to let this pass here. <laughs> you turned the opportunity down five times. Well, to come over and like interview, I said, "What? No, this isn't me. I'm going to end it, up in some it, corporate it job." It was the fact that our office looks like a giant Footlocker that sold it. <laughs> True stories. I found that piece of paper that was on her desk with those three goals. <laughs> I said, "We have the perfect job for you." 
Yes, that's what everyone kept saying. It's the perfect job for you. And I kept saying, well, I was thinking maybe a not-for-profit or a college or university president, but uh, I'm so glad that uh, Adam convinced me to come over and uh, interview for the role. What was it about Kathy's credentials, Adam, that really appealed to you and inspired you to continue to put the ask at, even though she'd turn it down five times? Um, in all seriousness, on paper, you know, so this is before I met her, she was truly the perfect candidate, as you just talked about with her. She had played D1 basketball, you know, for legendary coach. She had then gone on, frankly, to have a legendary career at Deloitte, which culminated in being CEO of, you know, one of the largest global organizations. I, you know, her, friends of mine knew her, had, had talked to her about her love of sport, I didn't quite have that piece of paper, but I had a sense of what her, her goals were. And so it seemed like it was going to be the perfect fit. And then when we finally got a chance to meet, remember the position wasn't even called commissioner before That's Kathy right, was president. took yeah. it. I, you know, it was just a, maybe an anomaly that it was always called the president. But I think one of the things that it wasn't even something that Kathy raised, but after I had met her and talked to her about it, I was like, well, this is a commissioner. You know, it's a commissioner level job. And I just had a sense that she was going to bring an entirely um, new focus and an energy, passion to this league, which is what was needed. And I'll never forget, Bonnie, the day Adam called. And I had already accepted the job, so it's not like I had any leverage. And I, as Adam said, and said, we're going to make you a commissioner. And I said, well, Adam, I really appreciate that. Don't do that for me. But I think it's quite progressive, given the social conversation at the time, back in early 2019. And... And so um, I, I actually think, you know, Adam was brilliant on that because commissioners do get a seat at the table that presidents don't in sports. And, you know, who knew we were going to hit a pandemic and we're on calls and, you know, it's only commissioner calls. And I was sitting there, you know, so it was it was it turned out to be, I think, really um, visionary. So when you started putting your vision board together and I don't know if there was an actual board per se. Did you think right out the gate? I want to do something completely different. I want to do a capital raise. Well, I, I guess, um, well, first of all, four days on the job, someone said you're, and I didn't know anyone. I didn't know an owner. I didn't know a player. I didn't know the lawyers. Someone said, you're flying to Vegas. You're going to be in your first collective bargaining meeting because the players had opted out of the prior collective bargaining agreement, which was their option to do so. So I was like, what? Um, so that was kind of step number one, was getting a progressive CBA done, which we did over the ensuing couple months. and did a couple things to build trust with the players um, because we couldn't have raised capital at that point. We weren't in a position to raise capital. No investor was going to invest in us. We, I, I realized it, it was a big transformation. So really the first thing I did was put together a very simple strategy. We're going to be very player first. We're going to look at stakeholder success. That's owners and the whole ecosystem. And then we're going to do fan engagement because we I asked who are our fans. And at the time, I got a lot of blank stares. So I think those three things were simple simple to communicate, did some uh, human capital changes, and then we're in a position to raise the capital. Well, the round closed in February, still early days, but how are you feeling that capital is best being put to work? We're putting it towards our digital products. You know the whole media landscape is changing. The whole way consumers are consuming content is changing. So we're putting it in the content space, digital. We're going to globalize our game, which I think is some low-hanging fruit for us. We're paying the players more. That's a big, big deal. We're finding ways. We do the Commissioner Cup, our kind of in-season tournament called the Commissioner's Cup. 
championship. So we're just chipping away. We're doing uh, player marketing agreements so that players, more players stay here in the U.S. and we can pay them more. So it's really multidimensional, Bonnie. And usually when you raise capital, it's a three to five year deployment. You don't deploy it all in the first year and we did not. Uh, but uh, we're really looking forward to the next couple years where um, we're seeing big returns on the exposure that we got this year. The most viewed WNBA season in 15 years, our most viewed draft since 2004, most viewed playoffs in 16 years. So we're seeing some re early returns. Um, and a lot of it though, I mean, it's deploying capital, it's marketing, it's doubling our marketing budget, but it's also the players are putting the best product in the court that I've ever seen in the game. And it's really exciting right now. And we're building household names and rivalries, which is, I, I'm a big studier of history and what the NBA did, you know, when they built these rivalries, whether it was Magic and, and Larry or whether it was thereafter, all the stars. And so you gotta build stars and people, you know, need compelling content to watch. So that's all part of the strategy of the deployment of the capital. Kathy, you touched on something that I think is a perpetual conversation when it comes to professional women's basketball. Who is the audience? And Adam, I want to ask you about a progress report on a comment that you made. This is, I think, back in April of 2018. And you said the WNBA is largely supported by older men who love seeing sound, fundamental basketball. With that in mind, fast forward to 2022. How have you worked with Kathy, the WNBA, from a marketing standpoint to shift what that demographic looks like and what does it look like now? Yeah, sure. So we love those older male viewers <laughs> in the WNBA and the NBA as well. And I think my point was in that interview that we did need to shift the marketing. It's partly why you know Kathy is sitting here today because it's a conversation I've often had with the players in the WNBA, and, and that is for the league to continue to grow and be successful, we need to attract your precise demographic. You know, the women in the WNBA, let's say, are roughly 21 to 35. That's a key audience for this league. It's a key audience that the advertisers are interested in. It's a key audience to, for the, for the progress on social issues that we're focused on. And I know that's something Kathy's been, been spending a lot of time on. So I'll let Kathy answer more precisely who our audience is now. As we look at our demographic, uh, we do have more, we skew more women than men versus men's league. I think we're 55 men, 45 women, which is good and growing in the growing sector of women. Um, we're trying to get more a more younger fan, a more digital native. I look at like how my kids are consuming their sports content and um, it's a good reminder of how, how you need to be in short form content as well as, as just live games. And, um, and then we skew more socially conscious, uh, more community minded, we skew um, more urban. Um, and so we, we look at all those demographics and psychographics uh, as well as we look at the diversity of our players and the impact they're having as role models in their communities. And you know, we formed a social justice council, player led league facilitated out of the George Floyd uh, 2020 bubble season that we had in Florida. And, um, the, the players are doing such great work there, and it's really pulling in that, again, socially conscious fans so that when we talk with potential corporate partners, we talk about who our fan is, and they love to engage that socially conscious fan. Well, I was reading a um, fascinating piece of research on marketing and, and specifically influencer marketing not that long ago and they were talking about how brands are really gravitating toward women because they resonate more their authenticity rings true more on social and probably because they're a little bit more apt to 
dive in headfirst when it comes to engagement. How have you been able to leverage that with the, the influencer marketing piece between your players and the brands you're aligning with? Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to deploy some capital against, is to find those influencers that are going to appeal to a younger digital native fan base that we can bring into the W. Because once you come to a game, Fans are like so excited. Our game presentation is great. The level of play on the court, the quality of the game is great. Um, but not enough people know there's 12 WNBA teams and we're only in 12 markets. So there's a, a lot of different ways you can bring in a fan base. And one of those is to expand your reach into more cities. But even in cities, people don't know there's a WNBA team in that city. And they certainly know there's an NBA team in that city. So working on kind of recognition, but one of those ways to do it is to build rivalries. And, and you know, look at Asia Wilson now has become such a, a household name uh, given, you know, MVP this year for the for the W and the Aces brought the first ever championship to Las Vegas, to the city of Las Vegas this year. So, you know, we've got to chip away at building these household names. We have some amazing rookie classes coming in over the next couple of years out of the NCAA game where the game's really healthy and popular. So all of that is, is how we're working on it, Bonnie. When I think about you, Kathy, you so completely embody such critical research that 94% of the women in C-suites across America are ex-athletes and how 50% of them, more than 50% of them, played college sports. What about your college sports experience empowered you to become Deloitte's very first female CEO? Yeah, this one's easy. One word, confidence. No doubt about it. I went to college. Were you not confident growing really up? Really shy. I was oh, super wow. shy, super shy coming out of high school into college. I was quietly confident in sports, but not in life and not socially. And then, you know, at Lehigh I went, it was four male to one female. And so my mom used to say, you're going to do fine growing up in a man's world because you just grew up with five brothers. And and she was right, you know, four to one male to female in college. And then I joined a profession where 93% of the leaders were men uh, when I joined in 1986. And so, you know, it's been, you know, maybe that, that confidence that I built through playing sports helped, you know, anchor me in a very male dominated world to just, you know, really work hard. And I never aspired to a title called CEO ever. Um, and, you know, but I always aspired to lead because that's what I learned on the basketball court as the point guard. And I was actually the center in lacrosse, again, running the offense and the defense in that case back in uh, the way we played. So, yeah, it was just it was confidence. It's the number one word. It's the number one gap I've seen between men and women throughout my professional career. Adam, for as long as I've known you, you've been a proponent of putting women in important positions. You've got several senior executives who are women. Many of them were athletes growing up. I'm going to give Amy Brooks, your chief innovation officer, a shout out. She was a basketball player at Stanford. From your perch, what do you see about the benefits of that experience when these women are in the workforce? Well, as, as Kathy said, confidence, I mean, I, I think being a walk-on defines confidence. I think almost by definition it means you've made the wrong decision. <laughs> I don't have a scholarship, but I should be playing uh, for you. So in addition to having the best possible people in the room, I've learned through having to be, you know, working for David Stern for a long time and now as commissioner having had to make a lot of difficult decisions. When you have um, diverse leadership in the room, giving you different perspectives, giving you um, um, life experiences that you didn't have and, and, and explaining to you how a decision may be viewed by someone who's very different than you, that's, to me, not nothing unique to sports. That's how progressive modern organizations should be run. 
Well, I know you don't have the ability to exactly go telling teams what coaches they should hire, but we're starting to see a smattering of female coaches in the NBA, probably most notably Becky Hammond. What do you project that landscape looks like 5, 10, 15 years from now? And what does that say when it comes to kids knowing if I see it, I can do it? Well, so we have, I believe, seven um, women assistant coaches right now in the NBA. You mentioned Becky Hammond. Um, I was thrilled to see her, you know, leave the, the NBA to go take a head coaching job, obviously, at the Aces and then to, in fact, win the championship. And, you know, she may be back one day, who knows, in the NBA with a head coaching job herself. Um, in Progress isn't happening, happening as fast as I'd like to see. I mean, ideally, you know, other than something that we're clearly acknowledging that men and women's bodies are different and in jobs that aren't about how high you can jump or how strong you are, how tall you are, things should be completely equal. And I think that you're gonna see that over time in the coaching ranks. We're starting to see that in, if you watch NBA games now, the number of female officials we now have, we've made a concerted effort to do that because there's obviously no reason that a female woman can't be officiating a game in the same way a man can. And I think you're gonna see that over time in, in the coaching ranks. Because to me, if I were out looking to hire a coach right now, I'd say there's a, there's a, a market irregularity. There's clearly a bias in the system against women. Now, part of it is it's not, there are no shortcuts to developing a new pool of candidates, and that's what we're going through now. That's, I think, why you're seeing, you know, seven female assistants, because still you want people to be developed, to come up the ranks, to sort of, to, to learn the profession, learn it in the, you know, assistant ranks, and then work their way up. But so I don't want to put, put a precise number on it. I, I'd say I would be hugely disappointed if certainly in five years we haven't seen our first female head coach in the NBA. Well, part of it is the players embracing it, too. What sort of sense are you getting? And, and I think an interesting comparison would be the older players versus some of the young guys coming into the league because it's a different conversation for them now, I'd imagine. Well, what we're seeing now, and uh, you, know, you, you can pull the data, it's amazing how many of our young players now um, came from families where their mothers played either D1 or, or in many cases now, we're actually in the WNBA. So I, I think there's a, a whole different kind of respect for women's professional basketball or women's you know, D1 basketball from the younger crop of players who are in the league now. And I think in the same way, and once they respect the women's game, I think they then also respect women as coaches as well. So no knock on the older generation, but I think the same thing we're seeing in, in industries throughout America that um, this, this generation coming in has grew up differently and has a different sensibility about what the, the roles that men and women can play you know, in the workforce. So it's, it's like I, I've said this before, it, as much as professional sports has led and the WNBA and NBA have led in certain areas, we're a bit behind in this area. We should have more women co head coaches. We should have a, a female head coach right now. We should have more women referees. And it's something we're working very hard on. Well, there are certain conversations that have organically grown louder and louder. There's been progress. I, I don't even want to call it pay equity when you're comparing NBA and WNBA because they're, they're completely different animals with different schedules and, and revenue generation and all that sort of stuff. But there's certainly been progress. Where I found 
really loud brand conversation of late is around media coverage and how while there are an inordinate number of girls and young women playing sports, it pales in comparison to the fractional media coverage that we're getting. How are you helping drive that ship, Kathy, to get us to a better place faster when it comes to equitable media coverage? Yeah, it's a great point and a great question, something I didn't know when I came into sports, how how uh, inequitable it was as far as a co uh, coverage. So less than 5% of all media coverage of sports is women's sports. So my first question was, what's the denominator? So I can see if we need to move the numerator 100, 200 basis points, you know, my kind of finance accounting lens on it. And the denominator's huge. So we're actually moving it. And um, what's helping us move it, Google is our ally, by the way. Google has been really stepped up and they have been one of our, they became a WNBA change maker during the 2021 season. That's our elite category of partners. They partnered with ESPN to get us more coverage, get us more games, our expanded playoff format last year. So those two partners have worked together um, and, and that's been great. And then we have AT&T and we have Deloitte and we have, um, you know, uh, U.S. Bank just stepped up and they all have their own niche in trying to get us more exposure and trying to help in our transformation. And again, you know, NBA just had their 75th year. We just had our 25th. So, I mean, we're going to catch up quick. It's, it's uh, Rome wasn't built in a day. But, you know, I do see some positive signs around media rights valuation, you know, because the coverage is great and we had great coverage this year. We did great when we were on ABC and ESPN, but we need more. We need more coverage on those big networks because our fan base, that's where they're watching their sports. Uh, and As you evaluate the company, Kathy, what is it now? And when I say company, I mean the league, but <laughs> I'm going back to your Deloitte days. What's the current valuation of the WNBA? And what do you feel, based on what you know, several years into the job, it should be? Yeah, so obviously uh, league valuations are based on revenue. Revenue is based on corporate partnerships and primarily, obviously, corporate partnership and, and media rights. And so we've been in a media rights deal. ESPN has been great for us. We really appreciate them. Well, that'll be renegotiated in the next couple of years. Um, and so, you know, when we did the capital raise, I think it was got out there that we were valued at just league only, not the 12 teams at over half a billion dollars that would put, including the teams. And we had some teams who had fabulous years this year from a revenue perspective, well, well over a billion, if not close to two billion. But, you know, certainly we're chipping away at that at the league by bringing in these big corporate partners that I talked about. And again, the conversation, as you said, at these companies and these brands is that they want to support women. They all have DE&I initiatives within their companies. And now this is the moment for them to step up and kind of put their money where their mouth is and support women's sports along with their whole sports portfolio. And when we get to pitch that and we get to pitch the vision of who these players are and who our fans are, uh, brands really like it. Well, as we get ready to close out this conversation, Adam, I want to point out that during the draft this year, I noticed that you, right at the top, you gave the 50th anniversary of Title IX a shout out. I know you well enough to know that there's usually intention behind these things. What was your why there? Well, you answered it in part. It just happened to be the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which is why. Yeah, but you didn't have to bring I, it up. You're right. I think we were also at the Barclays Center, the home of the New York Liberty. So that was part of it. And I also, like, I, I wish people could see that Kathy and I are sitting next to each other because we really are at the same table when it comes to running these leagues. And to me, when I stand up there, I represent all our leagues. And we're making this big push 
um, into women's basketball. And part of it is the WNBA, part of it is more women, frankly, watching the NBA. But it's a, it's a holistic approach from all of us. So when we feel we're out there at our draft, that we want to make sure we're acknowledging our sister league. We want to make want to make sure we're acknowledging that this is the highest priority for the NBA family, and that is developing the WNBA. Kathy, you got expansion coming. The goal is to have two more teams online by 2025. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but in the event you did, let's go down this road. What do you envision? What do you hope? is different about the WNBA. What do you hope it looks like when we are celebrating the 75th anniversary of Title IX? Uh, yeah, no, and I, I, everything we're doing today is to set this league up for the next 50 years, exactly, to get to that 75 strong, viable, vibrant, um, you know, billion, billions and billions of dollars of, of media rights, valuations, uh, team valuations, uh, attendance. So one of the things our teams struggle with is getting fans in seats. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're going to do a fair amount of things and we might do things differently, but obviously you can't predict where the whole world will be by then. But um, certainly a thriving league, one that is providing opportunities for young girls to thrive ultimately in their careers, whether that's in basketball or after basketball. So um, we love that our players today share that vision with us and that they're um, committed to making sure that this league's around for a long time. Fantastic to get Title IX perspective from NBA and WNBA commissioners Adam Silver and Kathy Engelbert. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out of your nutty schedules to hang with us. And thanks to all of you for watching the latest edition of the Title IX College Sports Conversations podcast. You can find all of our episodes on the NCAA's YouTube channel and their social channels as well. See you next time.